You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears in rain. On Wednesdays we wear pink. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Tears looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're gonna need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. And welcome to Films and Friends, a new podcast from Fuse FM. My name's Josh Sandy, and I'm joined today by Tobias Saw. Hi, Josh. This is a new podcast based around films. Respectively, we are the head editor and deputy editor of the film section of the Mac Union. So, allegedly, we know what we're talking about films. Yeah, we are two white guys who think they know about film. Millennial, or... Gen Z, or in-between Zennial demographic. And we also do a podcast because we are in our 20s. Yep, it's the new Wanna Form a Band. We are basically a matter cliché, and you get to listen to us now for the next however many these we record. Yeah, well, (laughs) essentially, yeah. So we aren't going to put the audience through hell. We're not going to be snobby, I don't think. Um. (laughs) No, I think that's kind of the point of this in terms of... um, uh, the films and friends is that we kind of don't want to look at films from just a critical standpoint we want to look at the sort of um socio-historical context of films through the lens of people's lives yeah and even you know even dropping technical terms i mean what inspired me to talk about film on a podcast in this format that we're trying to flesh out is that there aren't many podcasts that fit this um this niche, I'd say, because some podcasts are very much, uh, say, the A24 podcast or the BFI have their own and Home Cinema here in Manchester have one. And they're good podcasts, but they are very much extremely high um, production value experts coming in to talk about film and being quite, as well, experts on the topic. And then some casual podcasts are way too casual. Um, I keep trying to find documentary, not documentaries, podcasts, that talk about um, horror films. And so many of them are just... They're just not great. They deviate too much from the subject or they just have their own kind of in kind of inside joke format which doesn't really translate well into uh, new listeners' worlds. So, yeah, so being able to bring on, you know, friends, as, as the title suggests, and, and have them talk about film, we can be as casual as we want or as technical as, as possible, depending on who's on. I think that's the po- whole point, sort of, for me, about the thing I'm most excited about doing this, is it's, it's sort of, it's one thing for two people to get into a room together and talk about the technical aspects of films, whereas it's very different to sort of bring different people on every time and sort of get their viewpoint of film. Because I think film is, sort of, cinema itself is very universal. It's like there's very few people who haven't at least seen, been to the cinema once every six months or something and sort of growing up as well like that's one thing we're sort of keen to look at I think with most of our guests is to sort of take films sort of explore sort of their childhood through films because I think a lot of people sort of identify with certain films growing up and I think that's very interesting and I think it sort of gives another level of understanding to them because sort of on an objective critical level there are some Disney films that are absolute dross Absolutely. But yeah. to someone who is growing up, who maybe can identify, if you think maybe like something like Mulan, yeah. is that on a, on a technical level, is it the greatest film ever made? Probably not. But in terms of uh, Asian representation, to some people, that film would have been really, really important. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's People can connect to film on an emotional level. I say with my girlfriend, um, Becca, who will come on the show at some point, um, she isn't into film like I am because I will be a snob about the cinematography and the score and all, you know, all that bullshit. But um, she has a deep love for um, like childhood films like Disney and all sorts and basically the feeling that you get while watching a film don't swear I see you writing that, I apologise. Are we going to bleep that out in post? That'll be done in post, yeah. Oh, heck yeah. (laughs) But yes, I apologise. But yeah, basically, it's that. People can connect to film on an emotional level. People can can say, this film made me feel happy. And then we can elaborate on that and say, but why? What what, what was it? Was it the score that made you feel emotional? Was it the characters? And from then, we can actually pull a more technical discussion. That doesn't need to be insanely technical. From um, anyone who comes on. 
Yeah, I think there's a big misconception with sort of talking about films in the sense that people think that they can only speak about film if they're really knowledgeable. And to an extent, I get it myself. I, whenever I tell people I sort of I edit a film section of a newspaper and write reviews and stuff, what people tend to do is sort of list a long list of films at me and go, oh, what do you think of this film? And then like, I'll say, oh, I've never seen it. And they're like, oh, how can you just claim to know about film without ever seeing like something like The Godfather? It's like, admittedly, I should have at some point probably seen it, but there are so many seminal films out there and I have limited time to watch all of them. There's too much art, not enough time. There's so many artists that I haven't had the chance to... Um, music artists I haven't had the chance, you know, to, to sink my teeth into and sit down and listen to. Or so many books I want to read by just another time. And the same with film. I, I haven't seen The Godfather. And that is a sin. But, yeah, it's just... They, you can't do it all. And it's it's quite funny because people expect you to be an expert on it and be like, but, but you edit a section. You need to have seen the classics what even are the classics yeah i think it's a very subjective thing and i think like you could argue that to go through oh, i'm going to watch every single film on the imdb top 250 list and that will make me a cinephile it's like well maybe but also it, there's films on there which you still need to see because even if they're not the best films ever made they still contribute something to cinema yeah and so say so an experience i had with um one of the best films of all time, quote-unquote, say, Shawshank Redemption. Um, I saw it last summer for the first time, and I loved it. It made me cry, and I thought it was brilliant. Um, is it one of the best films of all time? If we're looking at general appeal, probably. It's there. There's nothing technically wrong with it. But, yeah, it, it took me ages to get around to it. And then I actually rewatched it at the cinema. They, they did a re-release at View, and that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's another thing that's sort of become big recently, which sort of enabled people to get into classic film more and really understand it from that from a sort of a level which sort of elevates it is re-releasing films in cinemas. Like I'd n- never seen Alien before, yeah, and the first time I saw it was the 40th anniversary showing in View last year, and I've seen it since on the TV, and there is something to be said for watching Alien in the cinema. And Absolutely. The first- I think if you haven't seen it in the cinema for the first time, I think seeing it in the cinema for the first time gave me an appreciation of the film unlike anything else. I don't think there's anything that could have compared to that. Yeah, no, I, I totally see that. When I um, went to a couple of the Grimfest monthly screenings, I got to see a handful of films. I got to see The Faculty, um, which is kind of... Say what Scream did for horror, The Faculty did for alien invasion sci-fi. Um... I got to see uh, The Ring, but the original Japanese version, followed by Battle Royale, which uh, was also brilliant. But these films, there was something about being able to sit at a cinema and watch them um, that is... It's unique. And I know I'm not the only person that thinks this, because, you know, we we think of this because, yeah, sure, we're film lovers, but even people who say they're not into film, oh, I don't love film, will still go to the cinema because it's... Where else are you going to watch Avengers Endgame? Are you going to watch it on, like, your phone, or are you going to watch it at the cinema? People will prefer the cinema a lot of the time. I think that's an interesting thing in terms of um, the future of film, in the sense that I think um, uh, Quentin Tarantino is very big on his love of watching stuff projected properly on film. And him, I think he said in an interview, what well, might be misquoting him or someone else, said in an interview that their worst nightmare was someone watching their film on a phone. Yeah, no, I, I see that. I mean, I, I don't think I've watched any films on a phone except Matrix Trilogy. The Matrix Trilogy, I watched them on my PSP. I'd, I'd learnt to hack my PSP. I'd installed homebrew software. I, had, I could get whatever free games I wanted on it. And I found this one website that had an insane catalogue of films that they were all in um, PSP format. So I watched uh, Matrix 1, 2, and 3... <laughs> on um, a PSP first, and then I watched them on a projector at a mate's house. But, yeah, that idea of, of screen, uh, the big screen being the place where film needs to be watched, is shared by a lot of people. But I've had interesting conversations with a lot of different people about this, and industry, industry professionals. So, last earlier this year, I had a chat with... Um, John Cooper and David Courier of Sundance. So John Cooper is the director of Sundance and David Courier is the head of curation. And basically they are... Uh, when I asked them what they thought about streaming threatening uh, cinema, they said that it's not a threat because they are 
experiences you can't compare. And it's all about getting films out there. If you're an indie filmmaker, maybe you can't make it to the cinema because the, you don't have the budget to put your film on in, in a cinema. Or I this week I've been talking to uh, organisers and curators from small cinemas around Manchester. And they all say that people want this cinema experience that with streaming fracturing with Disney Plus and all this crazy stuff and just the oversaturation of choice online, being able to find a curated screen where, oh, hey, this is a classic I haven't seen before. I'm going to go see it with friends. I don't think it's going to die out. No, I think, and I think especially with now, there's the um, sort of crowdfunding element of theatre, which is called R-Screen, isn't it? There's R-screen, a guy that yeah. does, it, does it in Manchester. Yeah, Manchester, Fergus. Manchester Classic Films. And I think there is definitely something to be said for, regardless of whether you put, like, I think American Psychos on Netflix, I watched it uh, a few weeks ago for the first time ever. Yeah. And if you told me that, oh, by the way, you can pay a fiver and you can go and see it in the cinema, American Psycho, I would be still tempted. Absolutely. I... My brother's favourite film is The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. He swears by this film being one of the greatest films of all time. And I just never really had a chance to get into westerns because it was the idea of these films are over two and a half hours long and kind of cheesy at times. Do I really want to sit through this? And then Manchester Classic Films had it on. My brother was in town. We went to watch it and it was one of the... It was just mind-blowing seeing such a long film. It was three hours long. And it really puts your bladder to the test. <laughs> well, well, right at the end, I was just bursting for a wee. But genuinely, it, it was made to be seen on the big screen. And our screen is such a fantastic tool for bringing that crowdfunding element to it. I think there's something to be said for sort of um, democracy and art. I think that's something that goes underappreciated by some people. Because I think the thing that holds a lot of people back in terms of their appreciation of sort of art sort of, as a sort of conceptual, as a, sort of a wider concept, is it can at times feel kind of impenetrable to the sort of the regular person. And I did it myself. Like when I first went, the first thing I did uh, when I joined the Mancunian for writing, and the first thing I did was I went to the Manchester Animation Festival. And even then, as someone who, like, I knew a bit about film, and I'd done a bit of writing, but, like, going to, like, a festival for the first time, it did feel kind of like, oh, do I really deserve to be here? Like, yeah. I, I, this isn't my... I don't know that much about animated films. Do I really... Is this kind of going to really, really be my scene? But I think sort of going to stuff like that sort of does broaden your mind in the sense of, like... Absolutely. Yeah, no, it does broaden your mind. Mm. And I think any opportunity you can take to make film sort of more democratic or more easily accessible, because there are some films that seem like ridiculously like like a black and white, like Roma, for example. Yeah, Roma is an incredibly specialist film. Obviously, it's black and white. It's foreign language, and it's, there's a whole emphasis on like the atmosphere of the film. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of the music in it. It's very sort of special specialist, and the fact that it was released on Netflix and anyone could get. Like if you if you were just at home, anyone could watch it. If yeah. you've only if you have Netflix just to keep your children occupied while you cook dinner, just to watch the kids section, you could still watch Roma at home because you have Netflix and that's sort of giving it to the people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's so many films that I've seen thanks to streaming. Mm. Um, recently, I watched uh, Cam, which is a horror film about a cam girl who's then realizes that she's live. But she's not camming, and it's some kind of... Is it a clone? Is it a hacker? You don't know. Um, and over the, overall, the film wasn't that great, but it was out there, and I was able to watch it and think, this was a niche story that I probably wouldn't have seen anywhere else. So there, there is something to, to stand by for when it comes to streaming, that's for sure. Absolutely, yeah. I think one thing we want to touch on now is our first episode and sort of we, the fact we want to get other people to come in and talk about films with us. I think it'd be good for us to talk about how we got into films in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, do you want to go first? Oh, I mean, I'm happy to go first. I think the thing that appeals to me the most about films is that I really, as weird as it sounds, I really enjoy stories. Like, stories can tell you, stories can tell you so much about the experiences of others, sort of give you an sort of another view, a world view, which is so far removed for your, for your own, it's brilliant. But I always, I've never liked reading. And it is weird for someone to confess that as someone who does so much writing. But I can, if you exclude stuff I had to read for like my GCSEs, 
or during school, I can count the number of fiction books I've read on my own volition on one hand. It's that bad. Okay. <laughs> but that's that's true, though. If you speak to people, reading isn't really for everyone, and there's no no shame in that. And I think that's sort of what sort of turned me on to maybe film in the first place, is the sense that you can still get that experience, but without needing to actually read things. Yeah. And I think sort of the, the kind of way I look at it is sort of... Uh, sort it's kind of how it sort of combines sort of a film is a combination of sort of it's a combination of storytelling, music, and then sort of beautiful sort of photo- sort of photography level visuals. And I think to bring that together makes something far better than the sum of its parts. Oh, absolutely. To create something that is truly special. And I think as especially and as someone else who sort of grew up I grew up in a very small village in Cornwall, which is in the southwest of England, and the village I live in has about four hundred people. And there you go. it was very remote, and I sort of ha- I, I was in a very sort of I did in many ways I grew up in a bubble basically of where of Cornwall of sort of a small town, and I think film is what sort of first gave me the idea of sort of other cultures or yeah. sort of that kind of stuff other people go through, and I think one thing that I realised maybe when I first started watching lots of films like maybe last year or the year before was sort of that sort of run of um, films that came out, was it last year or the year before, to do with um, the experience of um, sort of a, sort of the sort of African-American experience in uh, America. Yeah. So in one summer, you had sort of Black Klansman, you had The Hate You Give came out, Blind Spotting, Sorry to Bother You. Yeah, and the year before was Moonlight. Yeah. Um, again, leading on to that trend, yeah. And I think stuff like that, that sort of, the films themselves, because you can read as many sort of long read articles you like about the experience, but when you really see it in front of you, I think that's when it becomes something more powerful. Yeah, it's that transcendental experience that it gives you. That The fact that you can live through the eyes or the body of others when watching a film is, is it's something that many art forms can't really do. And film would be the most approachable art form. Because when it comes to paintings, um, I did history of art at school for a year and learned more about how to read paintings and understand the context and everything. And while on the one hand I learned that art isn't that intimidating and anyone can learn, on the other hand I learned that you, you have to teach yourself certain things. Whereas film, you stick a film on and it's super easy to just click with what you're seeing, even if it's Scooby-Doo, you can still feel that. I think that's the thing as well with films. They, they, films sort of inevitably have levels mm-hmm. in the sense that you can take stuff away from a film that maybe isn't immediately obvious. It's like, especially for sort of like, especially in many ways children's films, if you stick on Monsters, Inc., on a surface level, it's quite an entertaining, funny story about sort of uh, monsters. Yeah. But on, on a deeper level, like there is, even if, especially when you like, rewatch like Pixar films, especially, there is something deeply moving about a lot of Pixar films because what they do very cleverly is behind the sort of colourful bubblegum visuals and the sort of uh, little jokes that there is actually something a profound message about life underneath yeah. that. And I think that that sort of sums up what film is. And I think the fact that so you can take so many different things from film. It's like if you watch a so if you yeah so if you're at cinema and you go and watch a Pixar film, there'll obviously be children there who just sort of get appreciate the little jokes and sort of find it very entertaining, and then, but adults there can sort of appreciate the other message of that, and neither of them take away from the other. Yeah, it's it's interesting what Pixar does. It I find so clever that there's stories that maybe wouldn't connect with you if they were. Not just people, but real people. If it was live action, you'd kind of maybe not empathise as much. There's something about being able to see the story through a cr- like a monster or, or a car that kind of works better than pe- than actual people do. It's it's something very clever that they do, and it's hard to explain. Yeah, I think it is a definitely a thing with animation itself, I think. I think I've become more... Since starting doing this, I've sort of become a bit more sort of um, switched on to animation. And I've always... I can never get into any kind of, like, um, sort of adult animation. Yeah. But recently, I, when the new series of you know, Big Mouth on Netflix... Yeah. When that came out, I decided, oh, it might be time to actually get into this. And sort of having watched... I think I started watching it last Friday, and I've already banged through a series and a half in a oh, week. Oh, damn. But... Because it's like, A, it's really easy to watch, because it's quite short. And also, like, 
you couldn't get away with any of the stuff they do in that program in real life. Oh, absolutely not. The closest you get is maybe Euphoria. Yeah. Um, but then again, you don't have the ghost of... Um, what's the ghost of who? Oh, it's the ghost... Duke Ellington? Yeah, Duke Ellington, yeah. <laughs> there you go. You wouldn't get that in something like Euphoria. No, exactly. And it's sort of like, it is very difficult to, to define why it's so brilliant. But it's sort of like that level of... The level of surrealness that you can do in animation... It gives you sort of like maybe it's the fact that if you make something so surreal that it seems on the surface to be ridiculously surreal, but underneath that, that's what really allows you to go into exactly what it is and to sort of find the message underneath. And I think the sort of difference between the reality and the sort of surreal na- nature of the visuals, maybe that's the key to really understanding stuff. Yeah, it, essentially, it's just thinking outside the box. Yeah. Um, it's putting yourself in a, another person's shoes might not be the easiest thing for most people. So putting yourself in the shoes of a big blue monster, mm. it, it might it just clicks for a lot of people. So yeah, it, it's that it's that surreal element that really allows animation to work on that just that extra level mm. that just there is no live action that gets to that level. Yeah. So. Sort um, of- Oh, sorry, so, go on, go on. Yes, yeah, so, so so what sort of got you into film in the first so place? So what got me into film? Yeah, I, I was I was about to say that. So I, um, unlike you, used to read a lot. I, I mean, I used to bang through Harry Potter books. I'd say it take me two nights. I used to measure um, reading sessions in how many chapters I could fit in. Every book I bought had to be longer than the next, and I kept I read so much, and then. Once I was about, I'd say, 14, 15, school got really busy. We had a lot of required reading to do, and I fell out of love with reading. And cinema was something that had always been there on the side. I I used to go to cinema every now and then. I'd seen kids' films. But I never had this deep love for film. And that maybe might have been due to the fact that I grew up in Spain, and the films were dubbed. And honestly, dubbed films do serve a really uh, uh, important purpose, and it's that some people genuinely can't, you know, don't enjoy subtitles and genuinely feel that a dubbed film is an easier way to connect. But for me, as someone who is a native English speaker, was it, it felt it was just a bit of a chore having to watch a film and think, I know that's not Daniel Craig's voice. And why does Daniel Craig have the same voice as this other male actor? And it was always just a bit... It gave me kind of like this uncanny valley divide between uh, my enjoyment of the film and the the quality of the film itself. And then when when I kind of fell out of love with reading, I I started watching more films online. Uh, Some on Netflix, some uh, pirated. Please, (laughs) Please don't hurt me. And very typical teenage boy I fell in love with Christopher Nolan's work um, I was like I should watch Inception I should watch Interstellar and I started getting into these films and then horror came around for me um, horror used to terrify me as a kid I, d- I couldn't even watch trailers like I'd have nightmares from posters do you remember a film it was um, it was uh, When a Stranger Calls have you ever heard of that film I think you've told me about this before yeah you show- yeah, I think you've actually shown me the... I've shown you the poster, haven't I? I think it was genuinely harrowing. It is a scary poster, but essentially it's um, a 2006 film about... I don't know, it's kind of like the same strain of the ring where you get a call and you die, kind of... It's just dumb. But I haven't seen it yet, but the poster is essentially this woman um, on the phone looking straight on at the, at the uh, you on a completely black background, but her um, eyes... And nostrils are like screaming mouths. So she looks like some kind of alien ghost woman. And that gave me nightmares for ages. And I had a mate who was super into horror. And he just would, would be like, yeah, dude, like I watched Chucky the week. And it's just crazy. It's like this guy, he like gives his soul to a doll. And I was just sitting there listening to, this, to how he loved horror films, thinking I could never watch that. And then when I was about 14, I, I, I slowly got into horror. And it just, it just clicked with me as, as something that I just really enjoyed on just a really deep level I, I I don't know why it just clicked I just enjoyed it and and yeah just started falling in love with film um, became a big cinephile and when I came here to Manchester first week of uni I went to the, to the students union where we're sat now 
and went to the Mancunian meetings. I wrote more for music than film at first, but when I wrote for film, it just it felt right being able to to voice my criticisms about film or, or how I felt about certain elements that I wasn't even criticizing or, or, or praising, but just wanting to explore the world of film through a different medium it was really liberating. And then uh, edited the film section last year, editing it again this year. It, yeah, it just I love film so much now that it. I want to dedicate my life to it essentially. So, yeah, I know it's a bit of a, of a long one, but um, back to you and going back to our childhood. What were your, say, what were the most important films in your childhood? The most important film for me growing up was Toy Story, because I used to watch it a lot, to the point where like I used to. I remember when I was really young, I used to have in my bedroom. It where it was sort of like, like nice like painted wool. It didn't have like wallpaper, but I had like a sort of a thing that went around the middle of all the walls, which was just like a Toy Story themed sort of like oh, so wallpaper cute. strip. And like it was, yeah, I was pretty obsessed with it. Like had the, like the figurines and stuff, like a Woody and a uh, yeah. Buzz. I think I used to watch that a ridiculous amount, like all the time. Another one I used to watch a lot, which I think I watched it every day for a month when I was a kid, was the uh, Bill Murray Garfield film. <laughs> Oh no! Because to me, there was something sort of I found brilliant about it, but I don't know what it is, and I still I still haven't found the time to go back and watch it again because I think I only I only have it on VCR back in Cornwall, but I will find an online version of it and I will I will watch it and then before we, before we finish this podcast this year, I will go back find a copy of it. I will watch it and then I'll tell you what I think of it and try and I'll watch it too. We'll do it like a movie club. Yeah, thing. <laughs> I'll try. I'll re- what I'll do is I'll reverse engineer it so I work out what I identified with it about about it when I was six. <laughs> oh, I mean, did you really like lasagna? No, I don't like lasagna that much. <laughs> oh, I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's those films that when that you just obsessed over as a kid. Yeah, are really weird when you look back on it. Like I have these like really fuzzy memories of the VHS tapes we had at home. We had Stuart Little, and I remember what I can't tell you the story right now. I mean, I know it must. I know it's about a rat or a mouse. It's a mouse. Isn't a mouse it? that gets adopted from an orphanage, and I'm thinking it must suck to be a kid in an orphanage, and a family comes in and picks a, <laughs> a mouse over you. I used to have the um, I used to have the Stuart Little game on like PlayStation One, I think. Oh yes. And it had the um, it had the I can't. Is there a bird? There's a bird in the film, isn't there? Yeah. Like a like a yellow bird. Like, yeah. Yeah, that was. I remember. There's. A, I remember that kind of. That's my limit of my memory about that film. Oh, other than the fact it has Hugh Laurie in. Yeah, I do remember Hugh Laurie in that film. That's like one of my earliest memories of Hugh Laurie being in a film and thinking, yeah, he was in Stuart Little. He's also in like 101 Dalmatians, isn't he? Yeah, I think he's in that one as well. Yeah, it's just those those Disney films from like the mid two thousands that we'd all I, we'd always watch them. Like it was the typical film that they put on at school on the VHS player when it was raining, mm. or if you were really if you arrived super early to school or you had to stay in late because your parents couldn't pick you up. They had like a VHS club, mm. and there were so many of those Disney films that we watched, and they're just kind of really far back in my memory. It's just kind of weird. Another one that I was really obsessed with was um, Treasure Planet. Treasure Planet is fantastic. Which is probably one of the most underrated Disney films of all time, I reckon. For sure. For sure. The, I, I still haven't got around to watching it again, and I can't remember it entirely, but what I do remember, I remember just being fascinated by it. I think it's one of those ones, especially, like, I didn't even, obviously, when you're a kid, you don't realise it's actually based on Treasure, uh, well, Treasure Island, isn't it? Yeah. Which is Robert Louis Stevenson. And I think, like, I think that's something else to sort of mentioned about film is that film is also a lens into uh, classic literature to the extent yeah. you wouldn't realise like if you think like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet which is sort of which is pretty obvious it's a thingy or um, Ten Things I Hate About You which yeah. is Taming of the Shrew yeah exactly yeah that kind of twisting um, this a story into a new setting is, is really quite um, it, it's, it's clever I mean Say Shakespeare being put into films, and and now jumping ahead into adulthood. Um, I watched a film earlier this year, which came out last year, Blind Spotting, one of the most underrated films of the last two years. And although the the it isn't a, a retelling of a Shakespeare, of a Shakespeare tale, it, it's very Shakespearean in the way 
the dialogue is built because there are monologues but they are spoken word poetry but almost rap mm. and it's just yeah that, that being able to twist old elements or old tales into something new that is really just it's just magical yeah i think it is something that is definitely underrated maybe in the people think that films are i think there's kind of a misconception on some people in films are just dumb entertainment like just like so some films, especially like Fast and the Furious, is just cars crashing into each other and explosions. Absolutely. And to an extent, that is true. But that's one of the other things I'm excited about this podcast is that actually stuff like stuff Fast and Furious, on, on a surface level, it is just crash, smash, bang, sort of dross to some people. Yeah. And that, that's a perfectly valid opinion. But to other people, the messages in those films about family and sort of togetherness I imagine that to some people that really resonates with them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I I haven't seen many of the later Fast and Furious films. I did watch um, uh, Tokyo Drift a couple times, and I do really like that film because it is about undercover cop infiltrates a street racer gang, and, and the the yeah, the cinematography's solid and the music's fun. It's 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 a fun film, um, but then they just twisted it into this crazy tale of heist crew that can do any heist in the world if it involves cars and planes and stuff but their tight-knit family message is what really resonated with so many people and which is why i guess that iconic scene of um of vin diesel and um paul walker paul walker driving away from each other was so emotional for so many people because it's yeah he was such a core member of the the fast and furious family to see someone go must have been so hard for so many fans. It is interesting, and this it is interesting that to some, to many people, that obviously that just became a meme, and it was something yeah. that's objectively quite funny to sort of like. Yeah. But then other people, like there is something genuinely profound about it. Oh, absolutely. And I imagine there are some people who really did like when they found out that obviously Paul Walker sadly passed away. Like to some people, it really probably did really impact on their lives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The the idea of a celebrity passing away um, and being impacted by it is can be quite um, foreign until you actually go through it. And that kind of happened to me with uh, Jonah Lomu, a legendary rugby player from New Zealand. And in case uh, listeners don't know who Jonah Lomu is, if they've seen um, uh, Invictus, when they play New Zealand, the big scary player that they're all afraid of, the one that's right at the back of the team and smashes through all the fences. That's Joan Lomo. And I I used to look up to Lomo my whole childhood as as much as I looked up to um, and still do to Johnny Wilkinson. But uh, I my years playing rugby was just kind of, yeah, I want to be like Joan Lomo. And I got to meet him one day. He came to Barcelona and we, we went to this workshop and met him. And he was so kind and, and he was really funny and, and he was really good with kids. When they all asked him, how'd you get so big? Why, why are your muscles so big? He'd be <laughs> like, I ate my veggies when my mum told me to. <laughs> and when he passed away, I was genuinely saddened. It was just someone that, sure, I never knew personally, but I knew stood for so much that I even had people at school coming up to me and they were like, oh, I heard the news about John Lomu. Like, I'm sorry to hear that. And I, and I and it that's when it clicked for me that I thought, celebrities passing away can really impact people. So when Paul Walker passed away, which um, I think was after Jonah Lomu, um, it, it was... I could empathise with people who were saddened by it because it's it's hard. And I think that's something else to sort of, like, in terms of film criticism, that I think some people maybe falsely even believe this, or there's probably some film critics that do do this, is that they would sort of... The fact that people look down on the Fast and Furious films as dumb action oh, films... Oh, absolutely. ...would make people feel sort of like, oh, well, he was only a guy in a silly film, like, why would you be upset about that? Whereas if they were someone like... I'm trying to think of it. Uh, if... if um, when Morgan Freeman dies... Yeah. When Morgan Freeman dies, people are going to be like, he was an incredible actor, and you can list off... Like, if you look at something like... Um, I was looking at the IMDb Top 250 earlier. Yeah. I think there's at least two films in the top ten that have him in. Yeah, I mean, a top one, short 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 Seven as well. Seven, yep. And, and Driving Miss Daisy is pretty near the top as well. Yeah. And people will say, oh, that's a, this tragedy for film. And to a lot of film fans, it will be. But just because the films are considered critically better than others, I think there is a danger that you can take away from 
sort of someone's impact on people just because the films aren't traditionally good in that sense. Yeah, so something that being a film critic, an amateur film critic, has taught me over the last two years is that I really hate tearing apart films from a critical angle um, because there's something that just gets old and it's just malicious about watching a film and thinking, right, what did it do wrong? Where can it prove? What, what can it do? Like, sure, it did that well, but it was it was technically wrong here or this actor was bad and the editing was weird. And sure, I'll still pick on films sometimes. Like, I have a lot of, you know, nitpicks with Joker because on, like, technical levels, for example. Um, but something that I've learned because of that is is there's something about the film festival mentality of what can a film bring to a conversation? So being able to look at films and think, sure, was that film worthy of IMDb top 10 films of all time? Probably not. Is it one of the best films of the year? Maybe not. But is it going to add to a discussion? So say as you were saying earlier about the the um, films like Black Klansman and Moonlight and of this type being able to talk about... Um, say what what it's like to be black in America um, the, there's something so important about these films and being able to understand how they contribute to a discussion that makes you think tearing them apart on a technical level isn't worth it yeah I think in, to some extent in, in the sort of re- reviews I've written over the past year and a half I think my brain has sort of changed slightly in how I like to do it because uh, on one level it's still obviously important to talk about like the technical critical aspects like the cinematography the music and the story and the dialogue and the acting or whatever but I think also it can be forgotten by some people that there is an inherent role of a reviewer or a critic for lack of a better word to also discuss the sort of social historical context of the film absolutely because yeah. I don't think I like to think that my reviews aren't they're not black and white recommendations they're not oh this film's bad this film's good you should see this you shouldn't see this all I want to do is to project my opinions of what I thought the film was in a sort of pretty objective way. Say, this is what I thought of the film. This is what most people are getting from it. Yeah. And obviously, I'll still give it a score at the end. But if you want to see it and you want to disagree, that's fine. If you read my review and think, it's probably not for me, then that's fine as well. I think, ultimately, the the, the role of the critics... People say now that criticism is dead because of the wealth of sort of... um blogs online that turn it into a bit of a mockery or whatever. Yeah. Sort of people on Rotten Tomatoes just uh, purposely giving Captain Marvel a good, a bad score because they don't like Brie Larson. Yeah. Like, that is ridiculous. But at the same time, I think criticism is still really important because of the m- momentous mass of media out there. Yeah. In the sense, if you think... I think I've looked it up before, like, if you look at the 1980s, how many films came out per month... It is compare that to now, where you have. Yeah. If you think a View in Manchester, they probably put on what five or six different films every Friday. Yeah, like new films. Absolutely, every yeah. week, consistently throughout the entire year, and the the sort of the wealth of films means you do need some kind of critical angle to sort of get through that and think, oh, well, this is the films. These are the films I want to see because you're never going to get around to seeing all of them. It's impossible unless you are physically like unless you are an actual film review exactly. yourself, like. Which is, well, that's where the value of curation comes in. Being able to have a curated collection or, or festival or, or um, even just, you know, lists or articles are, is, is invaluable because... So I'm going to bring up the J word, Joker. I thought that all the drama behind it, the people saying it's a film about incels and it's going to cause violence was just BS. It genuinely had no weight to it. And the film itself, I thought the editing was bad, um that the story was kind of all over the place. But one of the core issues it does bring to the table, and sure, the the story of um, a man angry with society and, and becoming an unlikely hero isn't a new story. What it does bring to the table is a new look, a fresh look at um, austerity mm. and how those who struggle, whether financially or for health reasons or for both, are ignored by the system. So if you were to compare it to... um, I can't remember the name right now, which is embarrassing, but you know that one English filmmaker that makes really bleak films? Ken Loach. Ken Loach. Yeah, I'd say that 
Joker stands in line in a conversation with films that Ken Loach makes because they all talk about this experience of being just another cog in the system and being unimportant in the eyes of corporations and, and millionaires and whatnot. So it's that. It's the idea of being able to add films to discussion and say, this isn't what it did right or wrong. This is what it brings to the table when we want to talk about X. Yeah, I think that's important. I think that's definitely important to sort of like, as I said before, a film review isn't black and white. You should see this. You shouldn't see this. It's about giving people the facts. And like, I would say I watch Joker as well. And there's no part of me that thinks it's not a film worth watching. You should 100... If you listen to this, you should 100% go and see it. Absolutely, yeah. There is... Is it the best film of the year? No, absolutely not. There are, signif- no. there are films that are significantly better than they'll come out already, and there'll inevitably be more ones that come out during the next few months, so it's yeah. Oscar season. But it is definitely worth a watch, because it does... Although it's not saying that much new, it is still worthy of sort of seeing, because it is such a... I think it is, like, for, for lack of... For better or worse, it is going to be a seminal film. Yeah, a seminal film of this point in time. And especially in America, thinking of the socio-political context in which it's made, uh, currently this week there were the um, Democratic candidate debates, and a lot of them were talking about... um, They were saying that billionaires should not exist, and healthcare needs to be improved, and all other social issues that, sure, in Europe were very in very much in tune with the idea of welfare and um the less fortunate being um being helped by the by the government but in america this is only just coming to the forefront of the political stage so with this conversation in american politics joker very clearly is a marker of its time and that's what it's talking about at the end of the day I think maybe that is the danger of sort of saying it's doing the same thing over and over. Like, my biggest criticism of Joker was that it was an incredible character study of a character that was neither doing or saying anything new. Yeah. And I think especially as someone who has... Uh, I've watched Tax Driver for the first time, like, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. So that's very fresh in my mind. And there are definitely some... To an extent, there are some scenes which parallel Tax Driver to the point where it's a bit kind of like... Basically a rip-off, for lack of a better word. Fair. But then perhaps... I'm being unfair in the sense that the um, sort of uh, social situation now in sort of a, a big city in America compared to the, the late 1970s and now, maybe that's, maybe it's not, maybe in the sense that history is, well, the, the, I'd be saying there's nothing new under the sun. And perhaps it's the fact that the situation now reflects that of 40 years ago. Maybe that's why it feels sort of done before but maybe that shit doesn't detract away from it oh yeah i know i know what you mean yeah it's history repeats itself and film might do the same it's like if you could um say the film billy elliot is set in a not in the 1980s uh, the miners strike margaret thatcher and uh, set about miners could you make the same thing now about a, a kid of a, a a kid of a dad who is a uh, minimum wage, uh, zero-hour contract worker in the Amazon warehouse. Yeah, and he loses his job to automation. Yeah, you could probably easily do that. Yeah. Would it be a rip-off? Kind of, but at the same time, that is the the inevitability of film is that film draws on very sort of... Um, there's some common commonalities between film in the sense like love, loss, uh, guilt, grief, stuff like that. Of course. And I think maybe to an extent, my view of Joker has been slightly too harsh because I am unwilling, maybe perhaps I was unwilling to consider it on totally its own merits without seeing what it's drawn from. But then in some ways there is a difference between a homage and a rip-off and it's... Of course. It is, I think it's difficult. Yeah, no, that's true, being able to understand whether a film stands on its own uh, as a solid work or if it has to be looked in, in context, is, is, a diff- is a difficult conversation. And I say that it's impossible to look at films in a vacuum. It's absolutely just... It's not doable. Um, and there's something, again, about that feeling of curation, that feeling of adding to a conversation, that really helps um, the way you view certain films. Because you understand, you start to understand that certain films... Uh, have more value 
um, than you initially thought they did. Mm. So, sort of moving on from a film that we both felt kind of, it's fair to say, tepid about, perhaps. Um, so, what our sort of plan for the show is to bring people on to discuss their favourite films. So, we'd be remiss in not discussing our own first. Of course. So, sort of, what kind of films and filmmakers are your sort of like go to? Sort of like, this is what I want to. This is sort of represents my tastes of film. So, my. So, let's see. Favourite films and favourite filmmakers. I'll list them off straight away and then you can. You can say why on whichever you think is more, more, most interesting. My favourite film of all time, and I've seen countless times, and I rarely rewatch films, is uh, the original The Italian Job, starring Michael Caine. Um, my favourite filmmakers, I'd say, are both uh, Nicholas Winding Refn and currently Robert Eggers, which, sure, I may be jumping the gun. Um, I've only seen The Witch, and he hasn't really made anything else. But I'm so excited for The Lighthouse. And there was something so unique about the way he presented The Witch that made me think he's one of my favourite filmmakers. So, yeah, th- those would be kind of the picks. Mm. So, um, in terms of uh, Nicholas Winding... Nicholas Winding Refn. So that's like Drive. And... Yeah, Drive, Only God Forgives, uh, Bronson. Um... Oh my goodness, I'm forgetting. Um, he did the Pusher trilogy, which I have yet to watch. Um, the Neon Demon, which also was quite just a, a whole trip. Um, yeah, those, those are the films he's made. Um, and Drive is is one of the films that got me into looking at film on a more, I want to say critical, but on a deeper angle, uh, a deeper perspective. Being able to say that um, films have more layers than what meets the eye. Mm. Um, with Drive, I it was showing on Film Four, and it was in my last year of school when I was burnt out. I didn't have time for books, didn't have time for film, even barely from like discovering new music. And it was on the telly, and I was like, "What the hell's going on? This guy, he's just—it's just a weird character. Like, why would he relate to it? Why are these scenes so long, quiet?" And I just kind of—I just kind of gave up. I just didn't have the patience. And then I rewatched it one day. I thought, "I'm gonna get into it." People keep saying it's—it's—it's it's, it's good, but why? And I was just blown away by how intimate the story is. To a character that then, as I started picking it apart and talking to people about it, Driver, the main character played by Ryan Gosling, is basically, in the way he he's, he is presented, the physical embodiment of a car. Because that's all he does. He's stunt driver by day, getaway driver by night. And what what that film does, which really turned me on to other elements of film, was um, lighting. There's one scene where he falls in... So he's, he's falling in love with his next-door neighbour and he's standing in the hallway talking to her. And her boyfriend comes back from prison. So as he's talking to this girl, the light is above the girl and she's a focus of the frame. And Ryan Gosling's leaning against a wall. And the, scene, and the shot is literally Ryan Gosling against a wall. And then when the boyfriend steps in, played by Oscar Isaac... Um, there's a shift in the light and there is no light spotlight on top of Oscar Isaac. And when the camera cuts back to Ryan Gosling, it's very subtly slight moved to the right. And there's a door behind him with an exit sign and the spotlight is on the exit sign. So if you read into the film as him being the embodiment of a car, he is looking at the, at the exit sign thinking, I need to exit. I need to get out because this guy is threatening me. So... Yeah, that when Nicholas Winning Refn, he pushes certain experimental ideas that require a little bit more thinking. And I know it's a bit snobbish being like, no, but you need to think about it. But genuinely, it's, it's what I find um, enticing about it. It's like a puzzle almost. Mm. But what about you? What are your favourite um, filmmakers and films? So my favourite film of all time is The Grand Budapest Hotel. Fantastic. Because it is the most beautiful film I've ever seen. Like, it is cliche to say of oh, every 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 frame is a painting but in that film it really is it's like if you watched that film and took random screenshots every 30 seconds you would get incredible posters every single time because it is as with any other Wes Anderson film like Wes Anderson's probably my favourite filmmaker all time and then other ones David Fincher big fan of yeah Fincher's fantastic um, early Guy Ritchie early Guy Ritchie yeah like the uh, lock stock snatch incredible films and also a slightly underrated one, I think, that he's only ever made three films, is, uh, you know, Martin McDonough. Oh, what films did Martin McDonough make? So he did uh, In Bruges, uh, oh, Seven Psychopaths, and uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. See, 
I've seen two of those. I haven't seen Seven Psychopaths. I've seen In Bruges, which I think is tremendous. My dad showed it to me, and and my dad was like, "Oh, this one's brilliant." And I was thinking, it was a film that my dad likes. It's not going to be that raunchy. And then just, just it goes off the rails, and I just loved it. And then Three Billboards. I I just really dislike that film. It just it really, really? yeah it struck a bad chord with me. Yeah, I'm quite a big fan of um, Austin. I can't think of the guy's name. What is he? Uh, it's not Edward Norton. He looks a bit like Edward Norton, but yeah, um, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Yes, I'm a big Sam Rockwell fan. So Have I you seen that, Moon? Um, I don't think so. Oh, you got to see Moon. So it's written by um, I think Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones. Duncan, Duncan Jones is the name of the director. Yes, it's the Dave Barry son, isn't it? He did Source Code and did the Warcraft film. Yes. Yeah. And um, it's about uh, a guy who is on a solo mission on the moon. Mm. It, it's kind of similar um, in concept to maybe uh, the recent Ad Astra and um, oh, what was the name? Uh, the Martian. Mm. But where it goes with it and the way it presents itself is a lot more bleak. And it's, it's, it's a pretty, like, spine-chilling film. Mm. It's it's pretty crazy. What is your sort of, um, as someone who sort of uh, edits a film section of a newspaper, uh, it's quite an interesting topic for both of us, is what is your sort of film guilty pleasure? And I'll sort of give you, I didn't sort of uh, ambush you with this slightly, so I'll give you some time, I'll explain no, my I, own. No, I know what to say. Uh, my <laughs> one is, um, and it is a horrendous sin to admit, it is the uh, Manic Pixie Daydream kind of trope in film oh, no because I'm a big fan of both 500 Days of Summer and Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind and Perks of Being a Wallflower and Perks of Being a Wallflower yes <laughs> that film was very depressing though yeah that film upsets me quite a lot I um I, I know I know what the films go on but I haven't actually seen them embarrassingly no, none of those nope uh, Eternal Sunshine is actually really good it's definitely worth a watch 500 Days of Summer is worth it if you kind of are looking for something a bit more saccharine and Perks of Being a Wallflower is Brutally depressing. Oh God. Okay. But yeah. So, what's your um, film my guilty pleasure? pleasure? Right. So, um, I've um, I've had literal arguments with with one of my housemates now about why this film is actually brilliant, and it is Pain and Gain by Michael Bay. So, Michael Bay. I mean, of course, everyone knows like Transformers films and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I cannot stand Transformers. Any of them, um, actually. Yeah, the only film I've fallen asleep to at the cinema was Transformers. The one where I remember falling asleep to Optimus Prime with a giant sword fighting a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and I, I just <laughs> then the world went dark. But so I hate Transformers, strong word, but I do. However, Pain and Gain I think is just it's just hilarious and so self-aware that I can't get enough of it. It's <laughs> just. Have you seen Pain and Gain? I don't think so. So Pain and Gain is based on the real case, which is what makes it even funnier, of um, the Sun Hill gang. There were three bodybuilders that were... They they realised, why, why are we stuck in our world of just being gym instructors? Let's just let's kidnap a guy, torture, torture him, and, you know, get him to pay us, cough up some cash, and we're done. Easy. But they're three dumb bodybuilders. And they're played by Mark Wahlberg, um... Who's I? Uh, I think is the guy who plays um, Falcon in the Marvel films. Anthony Mackie. Anthony Mackie, yeah, and um, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> and it's just the the way it's presented. The film is presented in this kind of, of course, Michael Bay, um, larger than life aesthetic. But the performances are just hilarious, and and the trouble these guys get into. It's just it. It's like. Michael Bay's critique of his own self grandiose <laughs> idea of the American dream, where the American dreams will be like, yeah, I can do it, I can make it, I can be, be, be world's better and America's the best and like capitalism is going to get us to where we want to be. Pain and Gain is like, yeah, I have a dream. I'm going to cheat the system, but it ain't easy. And I just love that film so much. It's hilarious. So, sort of on the flip side of that, just before we uh, wrap this up, yeah. uh, what are your least favorite films? Oh, least favorite films. Um, I mean, it's really basic, but I couldn't stand Divergent. I was dragged to the cinema and I just didn't enjoy it. I just thought it was terrible. Um, I I don't hate them, but I have a dislike for how highly regarded Marvel films are because they're just formulaic. 
And sure, like Thor Ragnarok experimented with more wacky colors, but that's about it. Every film is just, they don't hold up on a second viewing. So the god tier status that they have just kind of, yeah, it, it pisses me off a bit. So what about you? So you're going for the Scorsese angle on that then? Oh, no, no, I wouldn't. Well, well, here's the thing with what Scorsese said. When it was taken out of context, when he said that Marvel films aren't cinema, um, the context of what he was saying actually makes a lot of sense. He was comparing Marvel films to being like a theme park where it's owned by a corporation and you have all the different attractions and you go and you have a good time and it's a bit of fun and that's it. Whereas when he meant cinema, he meant, you know, films that stand alone or, you know, maybe are part of a series, but are strong films that try to be bold and bring something new to the table. So I guess his critique was more of like Disney slash Marvel's management style more than the actual films themselves. So, uh, yeah, kind of agree with Scorsese on that one. That's fair. But what about you? What are your like, most hated films? Uh, my least favourite film of all time, and I think it's only is an artefact of how obscenely overrated it is, The Big Lebowski. I have got around to watching it. I do not understand why everyone says it's such a great film. Is it? Is it um, from the golden era of stoner comedy? No, no, it's the Coen Brothers. Yeah, but it's still stoner comedy, right? I don't think so. It's mostly no? like no, it's, no, it's like a proper like, it's it's sort of like a satire kind of like. But I don't know. I, I've seen Fargo. I love Fargo. I didn't, yeah, Fargo was pretty good, but I, I'm not a Coen's brother fan. Yeah, I can't really get into them. I don't think. No, uh, I mean that's fair. Um, there, yeah, there's there's something about um, the Coen brothers being hit or miss, uh, especially with. Um, I'm just blanking here. Um, yeah, like Big Lebowski not being. I've heard this this before that it's quite polarizing. Or Hail Caesar, I heard as well was some people didn't really quite like. Yeah. Um, but say No Country for Old Men, regarded as one of the best films of all time, or whatever. I read the book this year and thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, and I thought the film was stellar as well. Um, and it had that Coen Brothers twist it. But yeah, they they can be hit or miss. Yeah, I need to give um, No Country for Old Men a, a chance at some point. But yeah, The Big Lebowski is the one film that I just... Regardless of how many people, how many essays I read, or how many YouTube videos where it puts out, it's the apex of 90s, like one of the best films of the 90s. I just, it just it misses me, by it just completely passes me by every time. Yeah, and as you were saying earlier, you don't like when films are long. That's something that irks you. Yes. Is The Big Lebowski long? It's relatively long. Relatively long. Right, okay. Well, my thing is, I don't hate long films as long as there's a justification for that. So, so a historical epic, that can be long. Yeah. Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, the whole film's about excess, that should be long. That worked, yeah. The thing that annoys me is when you have a film that should tradition, like a comedy, a comedy or like a, a sort of mild thriller, is like it should be, what, hour and a half, hour 50? When they stretch that out to two and a half hours, that's when I get very, very angry. Yeah, it's... Yeah, some films kind of are long for the sake of being long, to just kind yeah. of one-up what they do. So, say The Irishman. I haven't seen it yet, and I'm kind of... What puts me off is the length. I don't want to sit through such a long film. I think, yeah, I've seen... Um, Scorsese's usually pretty good for length, though. Like, Gangs of New York is obscenely long, mm-hmm. and that still pretty much works. You could probably take a bit out of the middle, but it's pretty taut. Okay. But like, Scorsese's one of those directors where you think like he can pull off a long film okay whereas other ones they like you do not need to make it that long yeah. it's ridiculous oh that's fair then yeah uh i mean a long film have you seen um once uh not once, uh, the good the bad and the ugly uh no so it's extremely long but then once you leave the cinema you 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 realize that you think back on it and you're thinking what happened in this film where can i get to it what where did they get to you kind of it, it all works. Like, everything plays um, a part in making the film what it is. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think there is there's definitely something to be said for long films. And talking of long things, uh, the people probably listen to an hour of us speaking now, so we should probably pack this one in and uh, be joined next week with some fresh voices. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, next week we'll have friends on yes. to talk about films exactly uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram uh, mine's at Josh Sandy on Twitter and at Josh W Sandy on Instagram and yeah I've finally synchronised all my social media handles so I am uh, Tobias Soar on Twitter and uh, Instagram 
Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye.